Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity, desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you and on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the latest in our Time in the Market podcast series, where we continue to host only the highest profile and nicest people in the industry. This month, welcoming Gary Robinson, who I'm sure you're all familiar with. But uh, as a reminder, he's a, a lead fund manager on the Bailey Gifford American Fund and their U.S. Growth Trust. Gary, thanks so much for being with us. How are you? Well, thanks for having me on, Ben, and thanks for the uh, the very kind words. Too kind, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think too controversial. More controversial things to talk about than that assessment, I'm sure. And look, this is a conversation I, I really look forward to, is for sure, with Bailey Gifford. As always, we're discussing some of the most exciting businesses that are out there, but also some stocks that uh, tend to really polarise opinion. Now, I know like all stocks polarise opinion, but it seems that uh, the ones you hold does does tend to uh, polarise a little more. So a really nice cocktail. And I'm sure Gary will offer some really thoughtful insights on them as he, as he always does. So if we have time, we're going to be looking to cover NVIDIA, Netflix, Moderna, Shopify and the trading desk. So a lot to get through and a sort of a sprinkling of AI chatter throughout that. And in a break from the mould with the Bailey Gifford interview, we're not going to be covering Tesla this time. Remarkable stuff. But before any of that, we hope Gary will kindly participate in our regular prefer or defer round. It's 10 quick fire closed questions to find out more about Gary, the investor and the person. Are you willing, Gary? Uh, Yes. Okay, good. I love that conviction. We'll see how you feel after it. But uh, just a reminder, you give your preferred response or defer if the question is just a little too tricky for you then. Okay, let's then begin with prefer or defer. NASDAQ or Treasuries? NASDAQ. US or Asia? US. Large cap or small cap? All cap. Terry Smith or Nick Train? Defer. Of course. Netflix (laughs) or Disney Plus? Netflix. Stranger Things or Succession? Stranger Things. McDonald's or Pizza Express? McDonald's. Jay-Z or Oasis? Oh, Jay-Z. Press-ups or pull-ups? Press-ups. Skinny jeans or regular fit? Skinny jeans. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever think you'd get that sort of uh, collection of questions, Gary? You handled it remarkably well. I think we got like an insight into the investment thing. The one you defer on, I think we'd normally sort of come back and pull you up on the one you defer on. But uh, I don't think uh, we'll do that this time. Quite quite the diplomat as ever. But look, I feel like we're in a really good place to, uh, to interview you now, Gary, about investments. And we'll pivot to just that giving you very little time to compose yourself. So sorry about that. But look, as, as I said at the top of the interview, we want to discuss those companies. But before we get there, look, I think some listeners might still be like a little worried about the current environment for those sort of broadly defined growth companies. You know, we've got inflation still well above target. There's a threat of higher for longer interest rates. Valuations to some might sort of look still quite rich, you know, using those traditional measures. So, I mean, do you have any words of comfort for that sort of reluctant or, or nervous cohort? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it, 
I think it, we, we have to acknowledge that it's been a really tough couple of years for for, for growth investing and and it's not been fun um, for, for high growth investors over, over the last couple of years. But um, but I am as optimistic now as I've been in, in quite a long time. Now, to be clear, I'm not making a call on the market. We, we don't do that. I, I think it's you know, impossible to, to time the market precisely. But I think if you if you're willing to take a genuinely long term view, then growth stocks are really interesting right now. And my bullishness, it partly stems from the sort of massive tailwinds that are still in place for a lot of growth companies. You know, as I've said to you many times in the past, Ben, I, th- I think we're in the middle of a once in a generation period of technology led change. And pretty much every sector of the economy is in the process of being upended right now. And the pandemic didn't put an end to this. You know, the structural trends that were underway before the pandemic um, are still in place post pandemic whether that's the transition to electric vehicles or the rise of e-commerce or the shift to the cloud or the digitization of healthcare. You know, there are huge shifts underway in lots of sectors of the economy and there are innovative growth companies that are benefiting from and driving those shifts that stand to make very good investments over the next five years. And, and whilst the macro environment, you know, it, it definitely creates some uncertainty in the short term. I don't think that's going to matter a lot for, for long term outcomes at these companies. And the second part of my bullishness stems from valuations. You know, these these growth stocks are as cheap as they've been for a very long time. Now, the, the derating we've seen is, is partly justified by the rise in real interest rates that we've had. But I think even, you know, accounting for that, there are a lot of growth bargains out there. You know, we've seen weakness pretty much across the board for companies in, in the American fund, but most of the businesses that we own in the fund have continued to grow um, healthily through this period. So what, what we've actually had is is a significant derating of, of these exceptional growth companies. Well, some really thoughtful words there, Gary. Thanks. Sort of acknowledging the short-term noise and challenges and headwinds, but sort of setting us up nicely for uh, sort of for those with a more of a long-term view. But on on the subject of that derating, I mean, the company we'd first pivot to is Nvidia, and it's not obvious looking at a chart that has been a, a significant derating there. In fact, I sort of find that that company is is more and more popular among U.S. fund managers. But of course, Bailey Gifford early onto it. But despite its sort of popularity and its increasing presence, you know, I think some of us, or at least me, are still a bit lost about the value chain in semiconductors. So can you sort of remind us where NVIDIA sort of sits in that uh, in, in, in that process and what its edge is and what its sort of key customers have been? Yeah, sure. So um, so you're right. We, we've owned this one in the portfolio for quite a long time now, for, for many years. What NVIDIA does is it makes graphic chips or GPUs and graphics chip graphic chips are um, very good at doing computationally intensive tasks because graphics chips process in parallel. Um, and so anything which is very computationally intensive is generally well suited for these GPUs or graphic processing units. Uh, and NVIDIA is by far and away the leader in, in this market. The next player is a very distant number two. And I think what one source of edge for the company is, is just, and, and this is something that, that is a bit of a recurring theme with our holdings, is just that there's a very visionary founder at the helm at NVIDIA, Jensen Wang, who spotted a lot of the mega trends that are now underway in the economy a long time ago, mega trends like AI, and invested well ahead of them and has put NVIDIA in a great position to capitalise upon them. More tangibly in terms of the edge, I think one of the things that's really important to understand about NVIDIA is it's a vertically integrated solution. So it makes the graphics chips or the hardware, um, but it also makes the software that sits above 
those chips and enables those chips to be programmed to um, tackle different tasks. And, and that software is is a, a language called CUDA. And it, it's CUDA that forms the, the bedrock of NVIDIA's competitive advantage because it's become the standard across the industry. Um, and a huge ecosystem has been built around it, which is, makes it very difficult to displace. So there are now something like three million or three and a half million developers that use this language and have been building services on top of it. And, and once you've standardized on CUDA, it's very difficult to, to move away from it. So we think the competitive competitive position of NVIDIA is is very, very strong. Well, I mean, it certainly sounds robust, that competitive position, but, you know, there's no shortage of capital to invest at places like Apple, Amazon, Alphabet. I mean, you know, you said the number two was a distant second. I mean, can those gaps close very fast, given the given the investment capability of those other technology names? I think this is one of the key debates with NVIDIA, you know, whether the likes of Alphabet and Amazon will be able to steal a lot of share by making their own chips, which are tailored to, you know, very specific tasks related to AI. I'm not too concerned by this because I, I I don't think AI needs to be a winner takes all market for NVIDIA to work as an investment. The opportunity is just so massive. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, the software backbone of NVIDIA's offering and the ecosystem that's been built around it, that, that gives the company a pretty strong edge. You know, I, I mentioned AI. This is the biggest growth driver for NVIDIA by far. You mentioned, Ben, that you know, it doesn't look like NVIDIA has derated much. That's right. I mean, this is one of the stocks, or one of the growth stocks, which hasn't derated that much. And that's just because, you know, the, the emergence of generative AI is is such a significant development for a business like NVIDIA. Uh, NVIDIA is, is one of the providers of picks and shovels to this AI gold rush. And the training and running of these large language models is incredibly computationally intensive. And you need lots and lots of the very highest end NVIDIA chips in order to do that. And so what this, the emergence of this um, new category has meant for NVIDIA is literally tens and tens of billions of additional market opportunity for the company. Okay, my, my final sort of question on NVIDIA then is, relates to sort of the geopolitics and we hear bits and bobs or people, listeners might be, you know, fully on top of the policy changes at the US, but our understanding at least is that there's something of an export ban on the advanced chips produced going to China. And you sort of think that that's going to really knock NVIDIA off its stride, but impact a, a quite a meaningful damage into its growth potential. But as, as we've sort of seen, it doesn't seem to have rocked the share price at all or investor sentiment. I mean, what, what, what's your take? Is this a non-story? I, th- I think so. I mean, it, it's it's a little bit of a hit in the short term, and they should be able to offset most of the hit in the long term. So I think they said you know, about $400 million per quarter. So that corresponds to about $1.5 billion a year, and that's in the context of $27 billion of revenues. And the ban only applies to the chips which are at the absolute sort of leading edge. And so what NVIDIA will be able to do um, over time is is design lower power chips that are tailored for the Chinese market and which do not breach any of the uh, the regulations. Okay, great. Well, I've done my question on NVIDIA there, but sort of in and around NVIDIA, of course, we it is a name we sort of jump to when we think about AI, as you've revealed in your lines of, of response. But I, I sort of imagine like AI, so it's sort of to be so broad about it, but it's sort of peppered throughout your portfolio. But I mean, is are there any sort of more sort of acute plays you'd highlight or is it something that it is just sort of featured prominently amongst really most names in your mandates? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think NVIDIA is probably the most directly exposed to the rise of AI. I mean, the data center division is already over half of NVIDIA's revenues, and it's the fastest growing piece of the business. So it's the one that's probably most geared. Um, if you think of the value chain, you've got the, the hardware with chips um, right at the bottom, and then you have the data centers, the big cloud um, data centers that form the next layer of the value chain. And we have exposure to that through a company like um, Amazon and the portfolio, which offers a number of tools by its cloud division, AWS. Then above that, you have the large language models, models themselves, which are offered by the likes of OpenAI and Alphabet. Um, Amazon has one of those too. And, and then sitting above the large language models, you have the application layer. Um, and that's probably the most interesting and yet the most uncertain layer of the value chain right now. I think for some companies that are sitting in, in, in that layer, AI is going to be a big tailwind. And for other companies, it's going to be um, a challenge. And one of the things that's important for investors right now is to try and work out which companies are um, well positioned to benefit and which companies are likely to be threatened by by the rise of AI in, in that application there. So, you know, we have a couple of companies in the portfolio like Duolingo and Shopify, which have very much been on the front foot um, and embracing these new AI tools and have already built um, generative AI solutions into their products and um, are enhancing their products for, for customers on the, on the back of AI. And I think that's partly just down to the innovative cultures of these businesses, the fact that they're founder run, they're run by technical founders who really get this and who've been able and willing to move quickly. But the framework that I've been using when thinking about who the beneficiaries might be is that I think companies that, that have the culture and the willingness to embrace these tools, but that also have either very strong brand or proprietary data, because I think if you have those things, either of those things or both of them, then that places you in, in, a, in a strong position to actually benefit from AI rather than just be disrupted by it. Another very neat and useful response there. Appreciate that, Gary. And then I might sort of flip to Shopify on the basis you said there's sort of some uncertainty in that, uh, who's going to benefit the most in that area of AI. But uh, something of a tangential question about it to kick off. I mean, like Shopify, uh, sorry, like other tech businesses, it does seem to be sort of making what appear to be like quite eye-catching slash sort of dramatic cuts to its sort of staffing effort. And you don't want businesses to be reinvesting recklessly. I, I know that, but I know you like businesses that sort of reinvest and uh, put a lot into R&D. And I don't know to what extent like these sort of staffing cuts chip uh, are there to appease shareholders and maybe they go sort of too far versus where you would like them to go. How, how are you sort of assessing, I guess, sort of that sort of specific setup at Shopify? Yeah, no, I think it's a really important question. I think, um, you know, staff cuts can be challenging to manage from the perspective of a culture and um, a, a companies with strong cultures. Um, and, and that's something that we've placed a lot of weight on with, with Shopify. So it's something that we're monitoring very closely. So they've, they've announced two rounds of staff cuts. So last year they announced um, a cut to about 10% of the workforce. And then the most recent one was 20%. So 30% in total. But even even after that 30% cut, that puts Shopify just back to where it was at the end of 2020 or slightly after the end of 2020. What the company is doing really is it overhired during the pandemic because it thought that pandemic level demand was going to persist. But what we've actually seen in the e-commerce space is that e-commerce penetration has drifted back towards its long term trend. Um, so that sort of pandemic dividend hasn't been maintained. Um, and, and partly what we're seeing at Shopify is just a, an adjustment to that, um, which I think is a sensible thing to do. And then secondly, I think 
the environment has changed for for growth stocks. You know, we've gone from a situation where capital was abundant and almost free to an environment where now capital is scarce and expensive. And I think companies are um, adjusting to to that realization and shifting their focus from you know growth at almost all costs to a more balanced mixture of of growth and efficiency. And and I think Shopify understands that if it is to be successful as a business, it's important that it's able to attract and retain the best engineers. So in in that context, the share price does matter, and I think they they've recognised that and they've they've done something about it now. On the spectrum of being too focused on making money to not focused at all on making money, Shopify has been much closer to the latter end of that spectrum historically. So I'm not worried about the shift in en- emphasis. You know, this is very much a an incremental move for for a company that is ordinarily extremely long term focused. And when you look at the business, you look at the the fact that they're they're just moving towards profitability right now. The take rate for the company is three percent, which is well below what you'd see at other platforms, it, it doesn't feel like a company which is too short-term focused now or which is trying to uh, milk its ecosystem for, for everything that it's worth. Okay, great. Thanks, uh, Gary. We'll flip now to Netflix to arm us all with dinner party debate uh, material. But, you know, as we all uh, are aware, the competition has been fierce in this space. And it'd be interesting to know what your assessment of how that's impacting Netflix's sort of growth and, and revenue potential, but also like their costs as well. You know, how is Netflix faring in this, uh, in the, in the, as I said, in this hot competition era? Netflix has always faced a lot of competition in, in streaming. You know, before the, the latest wave of competition, there was still the likes of Amazon and, and Hulu around. So, so competition isn't a new thing for Netflix but, Netflix, but it's true that competition sort of heated up through the pandemic period as many of the traditional Media companies finally got their act together, realised how important streaming was and, and started to make headway in, into that market. Now, one of the things that we've always liked about Netflix are sort of the economies of scale in the business, which help to reinforce its competitive advantage. So you know, with content, you only need to pay for the content once and then you get to amortise the cost of that content over your subscribers. So the more subscribers you have, the lower the cost of content per subscriber. And a big company with lots of subscribers like Netflix can afford to rationally pay more for content at a price which would be irrational for smaller competitors. So people have been worried about the progress that um, Disney and others have been making against Netflix, but a lot of that, that was based on monitoring of vanity metrics like subscriber figures. And then recently, these companies actually started disclosing their financials. And, and it became clear that Netflix is pretty much the only one amongst them that is actually making any money. And, and Netflix is making quite a lot of money and these competitors have been losing quite a lot of money. And now again, with the change in environment that we've had, shareholders have taken a look at, you know, the losses that, that some companies like Disney Plus have been making on the streaming services and have said, you know, what's going on here? You know, this is not sustainable. You have to do something about it. And so you've had Disney under new management, you know, retrenching, um, starting to put up prices and competing more rationally. And that's something that we're seeing across the content landscape right now. So actually, in, in my view, the competitive landscape is better right now than it's been for quite a long time. And I think that creates quite favourable conditions for the next five years at Netflix. And what about its 
sort of reduced subscription model i mean apologies if i've got this wrong but i i felt like that wasn't going so well for them or was or at least the analyst community weren't enamored by it yeah the advertising um subsidized tier i mean it's early days so they only launched it um i think towards the end of last year and i mean they say it's going well so they charge i think seven dollars per month and the, the original aim was that they would make more money on this than they were making on the basic plan but they're actually making more money on this advertising sponsored tier than they're making on the standard plan. The standard plan costs $15 per month. So advertising is more than plugging the gap between the $7 per month that they're receiving on the advertising subsidized plan and the $15 per month that they receive on on their standard plan. So that um, shows that the um, service has seen quite a lot of demand from advertisers and and the um, the pricing that they're getting on their advertising is 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 really quite attractive. Okay, great, thanks, Gary. Now we'll flip to Moderna. I know a name again. I know you've liked for a long time. Obviously, it's better understood by listeners for its success with a, an mRNA vaccine. But I know you, you see some 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 unique characteristics at this business in relation to its ability to succeed going forward. I mean, rather than me continue to carve up and destroy its business model with my own interpretation. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that and why you think it's really well placed to succeed? So Moderna is trying to make drugs using mRNA. And mRNA is right in the middle of like the central dogma of life. So the deep stuff. This is deep stuff, Gary. Keep going. (laughs) The central dogma of life is DNA makes RNA, which makes proteins. So DNA is like the instructions, um, which every single one of your cells in your body has a copy of your DNA. And proteins are the functional units. They're the things that do things. Um, They help make things in your cells. You know, they form the the receptors on the surface of the cells, um, the signaling molecules that are released from the cells and so on and so forth. So if you want to do anything in a cell, then you can use mRNA to achieve that because it is the intermediate molecule between the instruction and the effector molecule, the protein. And what this means is that, that is, is very broadly applicable. So to any protein that you want to make in any cell in the body can theoretically be made by mRNA. And what that means, and sorry, I've gone no, uh, no, about this in a bit, of a, ta- a bit of a tangent, but what that means is that, that the um, applicability of mRNA as a therapeutic molecule is extremely broad. And so we've seen um, this work as a vaccine with coronavirus but it's got the potential to work as a vaccine in other respiratory diseases. So Moderna is working on flu and another respiratory disease called RSV. And ultimately where it wants to get to with respiratory vaccines is to offer what it calls a pan-respiratory vaccine, which would incorporate flu plus RSV plus COVID into a single shot that you'd go in and get once a year um, if you're high risk over a certain age or if you had um, your pre-existing conditions. And then beyond the respiratory vaccine franchise, they're developing vaccines in 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 other areas like um, latent viruses, so HIV. And um, they're developing a vaccine for HIV. They're developing a vaccine against cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, herpes. And then beyond those prophylactic vaccines, they're also developing vaccines for cancer. So they recently had some very positive data in a cancer vaccine that they're developing to be used in combination with Merck's Keytruda and the treatment of melanoma or skin cancer. They're also working on developing drugs for rare diseases. They're working on developing drugs for cardiovascular diseases. 
and they're working on developing a drug in partnership with Vertex for cystic fibrosis. So it's it's just very, very broadly applicable. Well, and uh, gives me a set at the top of the meeting talking about exciting businesses, but uh, that pipeline potential uh, listening to that is really sort of inspiring and exciting stuff. Now, to finish, I wanted to talk about the trading desk. I have to concede Certainly relative to Bailey Gifford, I'm, I'm well short on my information on this business, uh, like many others. But uh, can you tell us slash me more about it and what, what its sort of area of expertise is, what sort of the risks are to this business? Yeah, so um, so Trade Desk is uh, the largest independent demand-side advertising platform. And and what that means is that it's a, it's a software platform that enables advertisers, advertising agencies and brands to plan, execute and measure advertising campaigns on digital inventory across the internet. So Trade Desk is is an independent provider, which means that it doesn't actually own any of the advertising inventory, unlike a Google or a Facebook. Um, So it only works with advertisers. And because of that independence, you can be confident as an advertiser that Trade Desk is is working in your best interest. The really exciting part of the business right now is connected TV. So that's just streaming television. And Trade Trade Desk is by far the leader in um, programmatic connected TV. So programmatic just means using data to place ads. And the connected TV market feels to me like where other internet advertising was 10 or so years ago, because you're already at a point where like more than half of viewing hours have shifted over from linear TV to connected TV to streaming services. But advertising dollars have been much slower to move. So something like a quarter of advertising dollars are on connected TV versus three quarters still on linear. And I expect over the next five to 10 years that the um, advertising dollars are going to catch up with eyeballs. And there aren't many companies around the world that are better placed than Trade Desk to really benefit from um, from that big um, shift. Well, look, Gary, I could talk to you more about these that that company and all of them more, but we're really we're up against it time-wise now. So I'm afraid we do have to uh, call time. But as always, that we really appreciate your contribution and your support of our podcast, and uh, said these these thoughtful insights that you're you're so willing to share. So we wish you well for the rest of the year, and of course, well beyond that, and uh, your ongoing hunt for the sort of perfect skinny jean. So really appreciate your time, Gary. To our listeners. Please get in touch with myself or your relationship manager on LinkedIn with any feedback or guest ideas or to discuss any of these, uh, any of today's content further. But other than that, thanks again to Gary for joining us. And we hope you'll all join us uh, next month for our next Time in the Market podcast. Listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park, Perpetual Park Drive, Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, RG9 1HH, UK. 
authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.